1: Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Dr. Karen Williams. Karen is a consultant psychiatrist who treats patients who have suffered complex trauma and other kinds of trauma. The deficit of services targeted for this population has led her to founding the organization Doctors Against Violence Towards Women. The primary aim of this group is to advocate for increased public and professional awareness of Trauma-Informed Care. So I am super excited to welcome Dr. Karen Williams back to the show. Welcome, Karen. Thanks, Sarah. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited to talk to you again, because I know when we talk, there's just so much useful information. I get such great feedback from the listeners. So thank you so much for joining me today. Now, today, we're going to be talking a bit about what happens when you leave a toxic relationship whether that was abusive, coming out of that and going through that breakup process, which has so much stress, but added in coming out of an abusive relationship, what does that look like? I'm also going to touch on PTSD and where that comes from, because I know you see a lot of clients going through that. So to kick it off, Karen, let's start talking about what can people expect when they come out of an abusive relationship? I think
2: they can expect to be unexpected. (laughs) A lot of people think that when they leave these relationships, things are going to be better. I mean, you don't leave the relationship unless you think it's got to be better than what it was like. And so there's often this perception that they're going to leave and things will improve. People will understand what they're going through and respond appropriately to that. But often, and really very sadly, people will regret the decision to leave because the difficulties and obstacles that they will face after leaving are are so horrendous sometimes that it's actually worse than what they've experienced within the relationship, particularly as you were just talking about very abusive relationships. When you're in a very um, abusive, violent, but not necessarily violent relationship, you have your perpetrator right there and you know what they're doing. You have some level of control. uh, You're aware of where they are and you're aware of your children's safety as well. When you leave those kind of relationships and you are trying to access justice for what's happened and put some safety nets around around yourself and around the child, when that doesn't happen, which, you know, happens more often than not, that's terrifying because suddenly you've walked out into a world where you're supposed to be supported, you're supposed to be cared for, you've been given all these messages of it's this isn't good enough you need to leave you need to leave get out of there you know nobody deserves to live a life like that but the moment you do leave you are suddenly a potential liar and no one is really ever quite prepared for that because you know we don't grow up in a world which talks about this enough we don't talk about the fact that the moment a woman who is making allegations about abuse be it sexual abuse or physical abuse or verbal abuse that actually they're not going to be treated as telling the truth most of the time. They're going to be accused of making it up, lying, being mistaken, um, having maybe consented to the behaviour, even if it's really violent behaviour, and that there's, you know, bias remorse type thing. And so all of that creates a whole new layer of trauma on top of the traumatic experiences of being within that relationship. So some of the places where that might happen might be you know, going to the police to make reports about what's been happening and having a belief system that the police are there for you. And then finding out that they may not take down your history at all. They might say, well, we've got no evidence for any of this. I'm not even going to write a report on that. Um, where they immediately assume that you're lying. Um, when you go to the police and that, they, you suddenly realise that these are the people that are supposed to protect you and are not going to protect you that changes your worldview and that and you become even more vulnerable than you were before because now you don't have any layers of protection. Same thing with the family law court. Oftentimes women think, well, if we if I talk about what's happened in the home, if I talk about the abuse that I experienced, the abuse that my child experienced, then they're gonna understand why I don't want my child to go and have any visitation with this person anymore. But as soon as she does that, she's then accused of being a parental alienator you know that she is deliberately making up these stories because she somehow doesn't want to have her partner have any access to the child and it's an act of vengeance it's an act of of hostility towards the man and so again in that situation where it's it's it does it makes the woman feel kind of crazy she's like hang on what's going on here i've come out of the relationship as I've been advised to do, as people have told me I I shouldn't be in these sorts of relationships and suddenly now I'm on the stand here and and they're questioning everything, even doctor's reports that have clearly defined abuse written in there. or Child um, child protection might have written reports. All of that is questioned and often they are told, oh, she made up these allegations to try and set him up. She's gone and lied to the doctor. She's lied to child protection. She's called child protection on the partner to get him into trouble. And so those kind of things where your entire world that you thought was going to be there for you, it it all lets, it's a massive letdown, isn't it? And that's what trauma is about. Trauma is feeling vulnerable in the face of adversity. Something bad is happening and I can't do anything to stop this. I'm completely out of control nothing i do is working i'm telling the truth i'm providing the evidence i'm doing everything i possibly can and it's you know it's spinning out of control in a way that just doesn't make any sense and i think you know we are raised with this idea that justice always happens that you know good overcomes evil if you just tell the truth right that's what we tell our kids we go to school and we learn this be honest and, and apologise when you've done the wrong thing and good will happen. Uh, Hollywood movies all have these happy endings and it's not a reality. We don't get these happy endings often. And, you know, the most innocent people, these, these women who have been finally worked up the courage, tried to do everything they can to leave and then be let down in such a way that it's devastating for them. And, and that changed worldview. view. What that can lead to is just a, an absolute belief that the world is not the same and they are also not the same. That person that was hopeful, that had some level of optimism has died. And I get many women who, who say, oh, I don't think I can ever be that person I used to be. It's almost like a death in a way.
1: Yeah, well, I was just going to say, because when you're in an abusive relationship, you're losing your confidence, your self-esteem, you doubt yourself, you stop listening to your instinctive gut reaction, all that. You know, I call it your body's internal burger alarm system. It can be going off and you can know something's wrong, but you don't say anything because you you can't or you know that it's going to make things worse. So when you get out of that, you know, I know a lot of my clients will talk about they get a sense of freedom, of a sense of being, you know, that liberation from that relationship but then going to the system to get through the divorce can then actually make them doubt themselves all over again because it's almost like in some cases it's you're guilty until you're proven innocent in in the family court system. So I hear this a lot from my clients, like you know I'm telling them this, but no one's believing me. And so the onus is on them to prove all these things rather than for the other person to say, well, no, that's not true. The perpetrator to disprove it. So, you know, I get that and I can see how that chips away even more and causes even more trauma. And I know that actually there's a report being done over here by Safe Lives who did some research. And that report shows that there is re-traumatization by the family courts for victims of abuse because of these processes. And like you said, the other, you know, maybe the police or the, and the family courts and the decisions, the way they make decisions, uh, and the way it's run as well is very combative Especially here in the UK And I know where you are too In Australia So you know that but I guess I have to say That you know Not all lawyers are like that Not all court systems are like that You know There are all good people out there Good police I mean I know that In certain areas in the UK There's a lot of training On domestic abuse In the police force And in other areas It's, it's not so strong and, and there are You know Like with anything You know You get great plumbers You get not so great plumbers It's the same with every profession So I guess we can't Generalise that It's always the case But you know, I really am keen to use this this platform that we have here to, to talk about the issues that people know because not to scare listeners, not to scare you that this is gonna happen to everybody that goes out there, but to raise awareness and to shine a light. And I think that's what Karen does, you know, with all, all the good work that you do and all the campaigning and all the all the projects you're involved with, to to shine light on these matters. Because it's important that we understand this goes on. Because, you know, people will think, and it doesn't, because it doesn't sound like it can possibly happen in this day and age, right? Right, but the court system, particularly
2: the family law court, it, it absolutely replicates the abuse of what's happening within the home, that what you get is is gaslighting. You know, you get somebody, you're telling them a, a truthful situation, something that's happened, and you are immediately assumed to be lying. You've been told you've made it up, and you're crazy, that they will the court will say, "I want you to go and get a mental health review for for no reason. there's no because they don't like what you have to say. Nowhere in the world is it, except for in the in the court, is it okay to say, "Yeah, yeah, I need you to get a mental health assessment. And normally at least in Australia you you would have signs and symptoms that would mean that you would go to a doctor and ask for help, and then that doctor that would be the general practitioner who would then say, you know this looks like it could be mental health do you want to go to a psychiatrist if you know if you want and there's some level of autonomy and choice and a feeling that you need that kind of help whereas in the family law court it's almost used as a weapon and it you know it's used to discredit the person and say that you know you're not a good enough mother or you're or you're a liar you're unstable and the things that you're trying to say are untrue because you probably have a mental illness, and you actually have no evidence of that. It's just that the legal system, who are not trained in trauma, are free and have free reign to make these comments and commentary about women, which is it's really un, uh, unbelievable when you you see what happens. I mean, I've seen it happen myself, where people within the law court who have no psychology training and uh, lawyers or social workers who will say yeah you know she's crazy and she needs to have a mental health review. um even things to get to having um neurocognitive testing, so brain testing to see whether there's some sort of brain damage. um I recently had a woman who is doing a university course and is getting distinctions at university, but she was vague around some dates around the when the assaults happened. Now that's a normal thing to happen around trauma. When assaults are happening all the time in a relationship, you might not know the dates. They might be every second day, you know. They might be every week. They might be every day. So when someone says, what date did that happen, you might not know. And instead of understanding that that's the nature of family abuse, they said, you're vague. I think you've got brain damage and you might not be a good enough parent. And it was used to give the father, who was a perpetrator of abuse, the, the children while she went and had brain testing. So that's an absolute replication of what is happening in within the home. And if you have to send your child to someone who you know is violent, is abusive, is nasty, you know, swears, use drugs, um, any of the things that you would normally try to shield your child from, if you're forced by the law court to send your child to that person, you may very well think, what was the point in me leaving? At least when I was with him, I could protect my child. Now I'm away from my child. Now I can't I can't shield them in any real way. And, in fact, he's now really angry at me for what I've done and will punish me by, by punishing my child even more or keeping the child away from me and using the child as a pawn. This is happening all over the world, though, isn't it, Sarah? It's not just happening in, in Australia or the UK, but we're seeing exactly the same things in Canada, in America, and I've even, you know, recently been contacted by people in Sweden who are saying the family law courts are exactly the same there as well. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's the people- sexism and patriarchy.
1: And I, I think people don't know because the family courts are shrouded in secrecy to, ironically, protect the children. Um, and, you know, and, it, and so there's no real way of shining a light on it. I know there was a, a documentary here in the UK, Dispatches um, programme, which talks a lot about alienation. So slowly and through the good work of some incredible people, like the Victims Commissioner, the Domestic Abuse Commissioner here in the UK, and many other campaigners like Natalie Page from The Court Said, and Rachel Watson, and just amazing women who are really championing the cause and and speaking out you know things are starting to change and I did interview the domestic abuse commissioner for on my podcast recently and she was talking about some of the positive changes that are coming through including so hopefully increasing sort of vetting for experts in courts and things like that which you think would be happening already but they don't so that's yeah I mean shocking but I mean there's certain things that are changing and there are things that are coming but yeah it is a global issue and and I think it just recompounds that trauma, and you know, going through it not from your your ex who has been abusive to you, and you expect it, and you know that to then come out and then have maybe the lawyers of of your of your ex becoming the, the mouthpiece for that abuse, and then other people not believing you, and other people looking at you like maybe you're mad or you're going, you feel like you're the only sane person in the lunatic asylum, but then you start to think, well, maybe I am the mad one, and then that again, like you said, is the gaslighting all over again.
2: That's right. I mean, this is how crazy it is. We we have evidence of, about vexatious litigants. It's a concept. We, you know, you see it happening where people make up that you know, make up things and go to court for that. It's been researched, heavily researched, and vexatious litigants are almost always males between 20 and 40. That's the research that we've got that it's and I'm not talking about specifically family court I'm talking about all vexatious litigants so it might be a neighbour that keeps taking their next door neighbour to court or you know two family members fighting over a property and they just keep going back and forth fighting over you know land and things like that and it's all in the name of revenge. So there's a whole concept around that, and and there's all this evidence about it being mostly males that do this. So when there's the accusation of women being vexatious, because it's exactly the same thing, isn't it? It's saying that this is a vexatious complaint. The woman that's saying that it's abuse, it's lies, and it's a revengeful thing. Instead of calling her a vexatious litigant, they call her a parental alienator, and this is really important that they're using different language because if they called her a vexatious litigant, then the research would say actually it's probably unlikely that it would be a female doing this. So they had to make up an entire syndrome to make up for the fact that it's really unlikely that she's going to be the one who's lying about it because all statistics say that with the rates of abuse that we have in the community, then you're going to see abuse in the court system in the family law court that's why the women are leaving because of abuse so we should be expecting to see abused women within the court system it should be something that we're all prepared for in the court system but instead they just made up a condition so unfortunately it was a psychiatrist that came up and with the term parental alienation syndrome and his name was Richard Gardner and he you know you know from everything we know about him is a very unstable character and he had no evidence for what he said he just made it up it's and it's been debunked but even though it has been debunked as a myth as a non-existent syndrome it is continued to be used within the family law courts all around the world not just america where it originated but in australia and the uk as well and it's a syndrome that doesn't exist and how is it even possible you know that they are using a made-up phenomenon to this day and because, you know, we've got old people, you know, like old magistrates that have been there for years and years who make no efforts to try and understand that that wasn't a real thing and believe, um, you know, because sometimes women do withdraw their charges, believe that that's evidence of them having lied rather than recognising that sometimes women withdraw these allegations because they're under coercion and they, or they can't afford to keep going or they are afraid that if they keep going that they're going to end up killed. You know, I, I've, I've seen women just go back to their perpetrators because it's safer to do that and to apologise profusely and say, you know, I'm sorry, I haven't tried to leave, it was all my fault, I lied, to go back, knowing at least that way they can protect their their child.
1: You say that there's no such thing as alienation, but, you know, I know someone, or it happened to me maybe, that there are sometimes cases where people have tried to turn the kids around against their ex. So, how do you address that situation? Yeah, look, so that goes back to the vexatious litigants.
2: And there are people that will turn on their partner and make up allegations or exaggerate allegations because, you know, of their own. Pathology. Okay. Well, I'm not saying it never happens, but if it does happen, it's much more likely to be the perpetrator of violence, which is much more likely, and we all know, is gendered towards the woman. It is more likely that this is a tool of post separation abuse. So statistically, when they have looked at um, allegations of abuse and afterward, they have been able to verify and substantiate the abuse. Almost all of the time, in I think, when it's the woman has made an allegation, but they, I think, when they've done that, I think it was about seventy percent of the time they've been able to actually provide evidence, which is actually really high because it's quite hard to to provide evidence on on abuse, especially since a lot isn't physical. But when they have done the same studies on on um, allegations of abuse from males from males about their female partners it's it's really substantiated and so I think you know, I'm not saying that it doesn't I'm not saying that it never happens but we have to really take into context that we are much more likely to have a woman not report her abuse than we are to have a woman report abuse and so we should always be taking on a position where we believe a woman who is saying that she is in danger and that the children are in danger and we know that because we're seeing women being killed. So we can't afford to make guesses about that. And we certainly can't afford to be giving a psychologist who's met this family maybe once or twice to, to make that final decision on where, on a woman potentially lying or, or just making it up. If you think that the allegations are false, if, if anybody gets to that point, it cannot but fall on one individual who does not have any training to do that. I'm a psychiatrist, I can't tell all of the time if somebody's lying, you know, I don't have some magical powers. So sometimes I think the court believes that these independent witnesses, that these independent medical examiners have some special power where they they are able to, you know, really tell that like this time she's she's lying. And actually it's not, they're forming an opinion based on what they've seen, on what that woman presented at that time, maybe she was you know, and, and most likely she's she's traumatized, right? She's most likely terrified about this entire process. So she might be anxious. She might stumble over her words. She might be insistent with her story, and he's, and you know, he or she will look at that and go, "I don't think she's telling the truth." Whereas a perpetrator of violence, a perpetrator of domestic violence, they are very good liars. They are very good at charming, and superficial. Uh, behaviors that's what they do that's actually how they have managed to get that far in the relationship they're often the most superficially charming people you'll ever meet so that they'll have great kind of character references from their their workplaces they might have excellent jobs they might have lots of friends and so they do often present better the victim of violence but that needs to be recognized that this one person, like a psychologist or a psychiatrist, we don't have that capacity to work out whether she's lying or not. And we shouldn't be trying to work that out. That's not what we should be doing in the court system because there is no evidence that we have the capacity to do that. If you look at people who, who have got histories of abuse, look at their longer history, look at, how you know, what, what has happened to this person over the years that have gone by. Look at her old medical records when there was no court. Sit- process going on and see whether this is just a, a new thing. Did it they just turn up? Because maybe that might give you a bit more of a clue into what's going on, rather than getting some independent to do that, or at least have a panel of people. And that's what you know we we would like we would like to see happen in Australia. And what we're trying to get is that you have a panel of people that are able to look at all of the evidence, including the evidence from child protection, including the evidence from her treating doctor and any mental health professionals like psychologists or counsellors and teachers get all of that evidence and have a panel discussion about it rather than leave it all with one person who can potentially then put a child in an abusive situation.
1: I mean following on from that because obviously all this to go through as a survivor of abuse and having come out the other side is traumatising and can then cause PTSD. So can you explain to us a little bit about what PTSD is? Because some people will come out of abusive relationships and and won't be suffering from it, and some people will. Um, and sometimes it's accentuated by what they go through as they come out as well. So can you shed some light on, on that area for us?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so that's really what I do and how I first got interested in family violence and what made me decide to specialise in this area. Because so many women that I was seeing um, you know for anxiety or depression self-harm suicidality that kind of thing when I would get to know them and, and really hear their stories I was finding out that they've almost inevitably got histories of violence and trauma in their background and it's very often domestic violence that has been plaguing them and, and you know you said a lot of people might come out and not have PTSD I think most women that have been through through violent relationships or relationships like this do have levels of PTSD, particularly if it's gone through the family law court. I I just think that we don't recognise it, we don't see it and we're not looking for it, we're not having, you know, the GP isn't looking for it. Sometimes PTSD might show up in, in pain syndrome, so ongoing migraines and, you know, abdominal pain, fatigue, That you know, things like fibromyalgia, that kind of thing where people there's no real cause for, found for it but it's it's a pain syndrome or sleeplessness sleeplessness is a huge thing and you know if you if you're a woman who is no longer being abused and you're out of the court system and you, you're not expecting to have a diagnosis like PTSD there's no we don't talk about women having PTSD we only ever talk about soldiers having it or the you know the defense force gets PTSD not women
3: Are you struggling to cope with your breakup or divorce? Are you feeling devastated, heartbroken, sad and anxious? If so, please know that you are not alone and there is help available. Sarah Davison, best known as The Divorce Coach, and her team of accredited coaches are here to offer you the support and guidance you need to navigate all areas of your breakup, take back your control and start feeling happy again. Sarah will show you how to dial down those controlling negative emotions, unhook from your ex, get back in the driving seat of your life and design a future you are excited to live. Sarah has a range of solutions to support any breakup, including free guides, one-to-one coaching, her Heartbreak to Happiness virtual retreats, Live retreats, and you can even train to be a breakup and divorce coach with Sarah too. Visit www.saradavison.com today and start to feel happy again.
2: So they're not looking at it and going to the doctor, hey, you know, ever since I've been in this relationship, uh, I can't sleep and I'm anxious all the time and I can't maintain friendships with people anymore because I just don't trust them anymore they go in talking about the thing that they think is medic- most medical, which would be the, the poor sleep. I can't sleep. And the, and the GP who's trying to rush them out the door says, all right, he have a sleeping tablet. See you later. You know, it's very, we, there's such a lack of understanding that we've got huge numbers of traumatised women in our community and we should be asking all women about this and, and having women taught about it, you know, in, in a health campaign that, people who experience abuse will have PTSD just like a soldier would because you know what causes PTSD is either directly being exposed to violence or serious injury or witnessing you know witnessing injury finally or um you know your child being injured but it doesn't have to be actual physical injury it can be threatened injury so a lot of people who ha- who say oh no he's never actually hurt me he's never physically hurt me but they are still scared they are scared by the behaviors they might become aggressive he might be screaming at her and she will stop whatever behavior she's done whatever she might maybe she you know she's raised an issue you can take the bins out for example and he's become really aggressive and angry about it he might not hit her but she learns that she doesn't talk about asking him to do those things she doesn't she never asks him to do things anymore so she actually has changed her behavior to such a degree that she's controlled the violence in some ways she knows he gets angry if she goes out and visits her mother so she doesn't visit her mother anymore and then yeah he doesn't have to be aggressive because just the rage that he shows is enough to get her to change all of her normal behaviors but ultimately she's terrified so being afraid and constantly being walking on eggshells around that person that's a traumatic experience and, and that's well recognised. We all know that does happen. We don't really address it in any real way within the health system nor in the family law court. So the family law court, if they were aware of PTSD, they might be aware of why a woman falls apart on the stand and why she can't tell her story properly, why she's sweating or fainting or, you know, collapsing. That They might be able to be aware that, this isn't her being an unreliable witness. This is her very traumatized, and this is evidence that she is experienced. Or she all has experienced abuse.
1: Because I see this with the, my clients that I coach. So they're going into a court situation, and the aggression that I mean, I've personally experienced from barristers when you're in the box is something that you, as a as a survivor, coming out. That is a real trigger because being talked at, where you can't just tell them what you really feel, because you've got a judge sitting there watching, and how how they're disrespectful in their tone. They're doing everything they can to rile you, to upset you, to trigger you. You know, and and that's tough for anyone that hasn't been in an abusive relationship. It's really uncomfortable and unpleasant. But you put someone who's who's been conditioned to deal with that and then they have to put their best foot forward and they'll always give them the advice you know, don't cry or don't get angry don't you, you know, they're trying to set traps all that pressure is really is a disgusting process i don't think there's any other way to describe it i mean having been through it many times myself i know how difficult that is and and I would say that I'm pretty good at coping with things and I've managed my PTSD pretty well. but I mean I know that at times it can be very, very triggering. So for people listening to you, Karen I mean, you've touched on some of those things about sleeplessness and the anxiety, but if you' people listening are thinking, well do I have PTSD in them? what are the symptoms or the signs that they could look for just to see whether they they you know they would benefit from some of the the help for that?
2: Yeah, so sickness is one of the first things that goes off. And if you think about why that happens, it's because you, when a person is traumatised, what that really means is that person is afraid of, of injury. They're afraid of something is about to happen. And in the relationship, when you're living with a person who's abusive, you're always waiting for them to blow up. You're always waiting for the next bad thing to happen. What that is, is a state of hypervigilance. It's being always on alert. You're always waiting. Something bad inevitably does happen, right? Eventually he will get angry and he and there will be a blow up. You just never know when that's going to be. You never know what mood they're going to come home in. The car rolls in, you hear the sound of the engine and they walk in. What person am I going to get today? And, you know, that, or you wake up in the morning and the person's prowling around the house. What are they like? And you kind of become attuned to the noises of a person when they're when they're calm, and the noises of when they're um, when they're angry. So, if you are living with someone who's a predator, you cannot sleep because you you might get hurt, and that feeling of foreboding, something bad is going to happen. And I've got to be awake to be prepared for it. Because if I go to sleep, and someone's going to say, for example, into intrude into your house. If I'm asleep, I can't fight back, right? So you want to be awake. So as much as you say, I'm going lying down, I want to go to sleep, you, your body is fighting that and your body will continue to you know, have racing thoughts because it's going, don't go to sleep, don't go to sleep because something bad can happen. So sleepiness is definitely something that every woman should be thinking about addressing because you cannot face the next day, you cannot function properly, you cannot get rid of your anxiety if you are not a well-rested human being. All of us need sleep. So, I'll say to my patients, I'm not really huge on drugs, to be honest, but I do want my patients to sleep. I want them to sleep because every day is very difficult. Every day is hard. Every day is a battle. Every day is so, there's so much anxiety when you've somebody who has lived like that because you're living like that all the time. So, if you've at least rested, if you've at least had a good sleep, it's that little bit easier to manage the next day than if you have been up all night and now you're trying to to be on alert 24 hours a day, it's much, it's much, much harder, right? So there are some basic things like eat, um, sleeping properly, but also eating properly. So find that a lot of women will either comfort eat, so eat, you know, excessive amounts to, to try and feel better or they don't eat at all. They're so anxious that, they, you know, they feel sick and nauseous and they don't want to eat very often. So that's another sign. So if you, if you, you see someone who's got erratic eating behaviours, That's another sign that the person might have PTSD. And those are things that you actually can really help the woman address. If you're eating regularly, your body is going to feel well-nourished and ready to go, ready to do and, and sleeping properly. Those are things that you can do to try and help yourself if you eat well and you try to sleep well, and that may require medication to help you with that. And a person who is sort of trying to run away from a predator, a person who's feeling vulnerable, will often have a sense of restlessness In their legs, their bodies doesn't want to sit still, so they might be fidgeting. And the reason is because they're trying to actually on a biological level, they want to run away. They want to escape what they're feeling. And so it will present as fidgeting or that sort of restlessness in the legs. So uh, exercise is really, really good for that, really very uh, helpful technique. The things that that might also keep a woman up at night is nightmares. So you get a lot of that and, and flashbacks of events that have happened. So if you think that if I go to sleep, I'm going to have a terrible nightmare of things that have happened, you may not want to go to sleep because you may actually want to avoid those nightmares. It might be too horrible to go to sleep. So you have people that will actively sort of not want to sleep for that reason as well, or that they are waking up because of nightmares. And those, those sort of flashbacks, nightmares and flashbacks are characteristic of PTSD. The other thing women have is avoidance. So avoidance of things like Anything related to their partner. So it might be common friends, it might be the places that they used to go to, people that remind them of that person. It's very difficult when you've been married to someone for a very long time, we've been in a long partnership with someone for a really long time to avoid those triggers because they're everywhere at that point. So sometimes they you find that women who've been in these relationships just spend a lot of time just alone and isolated in their homes. A lot of women will talk about Being a different person, they're not happy, joyful people. They don't feel like they used to feel. They feel like they're irrevocably changed. I'll never be that person I used to be. That's also a, a sign of PTSD. What they feel is quite like they're broken in some way they've been told that they're crazy they've been told that they're stupid they've been told that they're worthless and because they've been told that so many times and because the court system has also made them feel stupid and crazy and because no one has noticed how bad it actually is then they will often feel stupid and crazy and so then they think i'm a crazy person i'm 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 not very clever i'm not i'm so depressed and that they don't even think that they are worth friends. So they don't try to make friends anymore or they they think that the friends that they do have are only talking to them because they feel sorry for them. They feel like they're a burden on, on other people. They often, and this is a symptom that's a little bit harder to detect, but they're often very big people pleasers. They always want to make people feel better. So they've been so used to trying to protect their partner from getting angry and always trying to work out what's it that he wants how do I make him happy and it might have been also what happened to her in her childhood with her parents as well where she's trying to make her parents happy you see that women that have been in violent relationships have come from violent childhoods as well that they are always trying to appease everybody so whatever anybody Else wants is what they want. They want to keep everybody happy. And they t- they tend to agree with, you know, go along with very easily. Where sometimes I have to say, you know, are you saying you agree with the treatment plan because you want to please me, or is this really something you want to do? Like we really have to, I have to really work with women sometimes to find out what they really want to do because often they don't want to disappoint me either. Decisiveness, that's another thing. If you can't make decisions because You don't really know what you want anymore. And making plans, that's another thing that that would indicate a person has PTSD.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's everything you've just said. I mean, I've experienced all of those. And sometimes it's the unexpected events where maybe you're left feeling a little bit powerless or someone is really angry at you. I had an incident not long ago where a lady got really cross, screaming and shouting. And it wasn't actually anything I'd done, but she was just ranting. And I happened to be there with my son and absorbed a lot of the negative energy being very close to her. As she was doing the screaming and shouting and at the time. I just carried on but actually I was going on a plane that day and later on on the flight I started to shake and that was about an hour two hours after the actual incident um my hands started to shake and I found found it quite hard to breathe I guess it was like a little panic attack I guess and I was thinking gosh what's going on because I'd handled that actual incident in the moment absolutely fine and then I realized actually that outburst of negative energy from somebody else, I'd actually absorbed that in some way, which was now triggering this reaction. And it wasn't actually related to my PTSD incident at all. So, do you see this happening?
2: Yes. And definitely, where you can have triggers at any point in time, that is actually a, a sort of an easier thing to recognize when you have a really defined trigger. If you've been in an abusive relationship, somebody is screaming at you and bring you down, then a fairly simple connection to make. What's harder to make is when you have those feelings out of nowhere. So we often have an, a real clear understanding of a flashback where you can see there's something visual, right, If or auditory. So if you think about the flashback, say, if, you know, I'm going to go with the soldier example, because that's someone that's most familiar to people. If there were fireworks, loud fireworks, that is associated the sound of bombs that might set off a trigger reaction in a soldier. And there's a defined thing. There's, you know That was the trigger and this was the outcome. But you can have the feelings of distress, the feelings of absolute hopelessness and worthlessness overtake you, tearfulness, panic, out of nowhere. And that's sort of like a, what I would call an emotional flashback where you've kind of gone back into the space that you were and it, there's no, nothing visual that triggers you off. There was nothing that you heard necessarily, but your body just went back into that place. And that's a real flashback. It's exactly the same feelings. You might find yourself sobbing uncontrollably and, and you think, why did that happen? I'm, I'm actually crazy. So that feeds it back even more, right? Because you've been told already that you're crazy and you are crying out of nowhere, but then that actually is a sign of PTSD. That is a flashback. Thing is, like I said before, Because you've been with that person for a very long time and and you've done day-to-day things with them, you can get those kind of flashbacks so much more easily than people who have got a one-off traumatic event because... You've got associations with this person from maybe the shopping centre when, you know, he told you off for what you chose to buy or you might, you know, the school where he, you know, once you got in the car, he said, how could you embarrass us in front of the, you know, like he could have gotten off angry at you in those situations might be a smell of an aftershave that he wore or a shirt that he wore or facial hair of someone who had, was similar to him it might be the expression in that person's eyes that is very similar to your perpetrators. So the triggers for somebody who's been in an abusive relationship are so much more frequent and they're very, very difficult to avoid. And I do think that's what makes women feel crazy because they go, I can't get to the shop and that be an easy thing. I panic for going to the shops. And then they feel stupid for being Scared of going to the shops because when you say it, it doesn't make any sense to everybody else. Just go and buy your groceries. But for someone who's traumatised, who thinks that that everybody hates them, who thinks that people look badly upon them, think that they're ugly or worthless or useless, because they don't just feel that in within themselves, they think everybody else thinks that too about them. Going to the shops and purchasing is is a traumatic event it's very frightening for them but then they feel stupid that it is so they don't want to talk about it so there's all this shame around it as well they don't want to go to the and say, I'm afraid to pick up my groceries or I don't want to I'm afraid to go to the um, shops and tell the person I want this size shoe because I think she'll probably laugh at me for wanting to buy shoes and she'll think what you know what's the point of you trying to dress up anyway?" You know, you're ugly, because they often have been told that they're ugly, they've been told that they're disgusting. So they think that everyone thinks they're disgusting. So low self-esteem is one of those other hidden symptoms that you do see that just really hate themselves. They really do. It's it's terrible, really, to see someone who has such a poor view of themselves.
1: It's devastating to see and to experience, but it's so understandable when you know what that person has been through and you can see it from their perspective. And it's a normal, understandable human reaction to the situation. But also there are things you can do to turn it around. There's things you can do to boost your self-confidence. Like working with somebody like you, for example, and getting the clarity, which is going to give you that shining light on your own behavior and understanding what makes you tick. So you think, oh, yes, I know that's what's going on with me right now. Because once you consciously understand what's happening to you, rather than just being shocked, emotionally confused by your panic attacks, just coming up out of nowhere. So even when you're not expecting it and you don't understand it, you can think, ah, OK, I know why this is happening.
2: Totally see exactly what you're talking about when I pick into a person that what they're feeling has a, a cause. We know why it's happened. It's an organic reason for it. This is, medication. this is a health condition, you know. And and I can see, you know, I can tell you exactly what you're experiencing. And I, you know, tick tick tick. When they go, oh yes, I've got that. I've got that. It's it's validation. It's it's a recognition that something happened to them, not that there's something faulty with them. One more symptom I do want to talk about, just because it's one that causes a lot of people a lot of distress. Sometimes people get anger outbursts. They feel episodes of just rage, you know, that overwhelms them, that's completely out of character for what they'd normally be like. They just feel like their blood is boiling and it can be about something really silly, like a noise, someone asking them a question, the kids are asking them something and instead of being able to respond patiently like they'd like to respond, because ideally that's what they'd like to do, they might suddenly have this sort of feeling of rage and anger and they do, you know, they might behave in a way that they typically wouldn't. And then when they do that, they hate themselves for doing that. Oh, they feel so guilty, you know, I was so angry about such a silly thing. What's wrong with me that I am so angry? And that's a really important thing to recognise. It is another symptom of PTSD. If you think about the term fight or flight, everybody knows that that word, even though there is more than just fight or flight responses, but just for the purposes of, of what I'm talking about, Flight is running away from the predator, right? But fight is to stay behind and fight back. Now, if you don't have anger to fight back, then you aren't going to be able to fight back. So this is a normal trauma response is to get a feeling of rage to let you fight. It's part of the response. So when you are triggered by whatever it is and you are having a flashback of some sort and you're feeling in danger and at some level some biological reason you're feeling in danger your response instead of being to run away and to be tearful and anxious it might be to be enraged and I I just want your listeners to know that because sometimes people it causes people a lot of distress to not know why they're angry and it makes them feel like bad people Like, oh, you know, I'm an arsehole, basically, because I, I get angry about dumb things. I get angry at my kids for no reason. And it's one of the reasons why women will come for help sometimes. It's not that they're coming to me saying, oh, I've got PTSD. They're coming because they're worried about these feelings of rage that come out of nowhere and they don't understand it. They don't know why, because they weren't like that before.
1: Yes, I see that again in my clinic. And I know that reaction very well. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for being an absolutely amazing guest once again. I mean, you're awesome. And I know this information is going to really, really help so many of my listeners. So thank you once again for being such a fabulous guest. Thank you so much, Sarah. Please do come back again. We love having you. And that's it for today's episode. Please head on over to Twitter and follow Dr. Karen Williams to find out what she's doing. And I look forward to you joining me on my next episode.
0: That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to win a free ticket to one of Sarah's virtual retreats.